Welcome to Grumlaw. We are so glad that you're here today. Seriously, thanks for making uh, a Grumlaw a part of your Father's Day celebration, making it part of your week. Um, if this is your first time here, uh, we're so thankful that you decided to show up here today. We know that walking into a new place, uh, it can certainly feel intimidating, it can feel a little bit risky, but we're so glad that you decided to take that risk and walk through our doors as we continue again in this series, as you just saw, called God Never Said That. Now, if you haven't been here uh, the first couple weeks, we are in part three of four this morning, but if you've missed the first two weeks, have no fear. We got you covered. You can go to grumlaw.com messages, and you can catch yourself up there, or you can find us in a Grumlaw church, wherever it is that you grab your podcast from. Now, for those of you that have been coming here for a little bit, you'll notice this is a little bit different. It used to be grumlaw.com recent messages. We're trying to simplify things around here. We're trying to make your life easy, so just slash messages now. Uh, we kind of gave that entire part of the site an entire overhaul, super easy to navigate. And another exciting thing, if you pay attention to us on social media, you'll notice that with, beginning with the uh, start of this series, so a couple weeks ago, now not only can you listen to the messages, you can watch the messages as well, which is pretty exciting. We heard your complaints. A lot of you were just like, man, I just want more Shay in my life. I want to see you more often. And I was like, we got you covered. I'm obviously kidding. But hopefully, seriously, some of you, when you're not able to be here for whatever reason, hopefully some of you are taking advantage of that. Now, what we've been doing in this series is we have been addressing some cultural misbeliefs uh, that a lot of us have said over and over and over to ourselves, and we've just kind of come to accept these things as fact, when in reality, God never said that. Um, and one of the greatest dangers that we've kind of unpacked over these first two weeks in believing some of these myths uh, is not just necessarily the inherent myth in and of itself that you're believing a lie, it's really what else it leads to. Because a lot of people, and perhaps this is actually your story, a lot of people end up walking away from God because they were putting their faith in a God that never existed in the first place. And perhaps, perhaps, you walked away from God unnecessarily. And so week one, we talked about the cultural misbelief that above all else, God just wants you to be happy that God places your happiness front and center. I mean, that is his top priority, and that sure sounds nice, but God never said that. Now, the good news is, is God actually has something far better for you than your happiness. Above all else, God wants you to be blessed. Last week, Melissa Miller, our uh, Connect Groups director, she spoke, and she did a great job unpacking this myth that God will never give you more than you can handle. Again, God never said that. In fact, any of you that have 10 minutes of life experience, you can probably speak to that. There's probably been many moments in your life where you have felt like, gosh, God is giving me way more than I can handle. But it's in those tough, it's in those stressful times that God is begging for you to go running to him. God wants us to depend on his presence and he wants us to experience his power. And today, as we move on to part three, we're going to take a look at a very, very dangerous misbelief that can have some pretty drastic consequences for all of our lives. It's maybe going to be a little bit heavier than the first two weeks of this series. And so with that in mind, I thought we'd maybe start out a little bit lighter. So I want a little participation right now. What I want you to do on the count of three, I want you to point, and I want everybody to do this, all right? On the count of three, I want you to point to whoever it is that you think is the greatest sinner in the room, okay? One, two, three, point. Some of you actually pointed. That is unbelievable, I see wives pointing to their husbands. That's terrible. You need to turn around and put that finger back to yourself for being so stinking judgmental. But, but, we just touched on something right there. Uh, and it's kind of the tip of the iceberg for what we're going to be discussing today. In our society today, arguably the most offensive thing that you could do to another person, arguably the worst thing that you could do to another person is tell them that they are wrong. Or even worse yet, you, you could use like a harsher sounding word. It's a little bit of a churchier word. You could tell them that they are a sinner, right? Telling somebody that they're wrong or you, or you are a sinner, calling people out in their, in their, it's like hard to even say, like calling people out in their sin, uh, it's so unacceptable in our culture. And so with that in mind, it's not too difficult to figure out how a lot of people have embraced this lie and put it up there. It doesn't matter what you do. 
Really, it doesn't matter what you do. And typically, they'll follow it up with this statement. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anyone. What I do is none of your business. If it's not hurting you, why do you care? It doesn't matter what I do. As long as it doesn't hurt you, as long as it doesn't hurt the people that you care about, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, it does not matter what I do. Now, like I did in week one, let's just clear the air on this right here on the front end. God never said that. In fact, God almost said the complete opposite of that. In fact, we'll find that today as we examine some scripture that God really said, no, no, I didn't say that at all. I'm going to tell you that I have something much different, in fact, much better for you. But before we go any farther, uh, and considering that this kind of might be the potential to you know, be a little bit of a heavier subject, I'd love to pray for you and pray for me, so let me do that now. Father, I just truly say thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, that you are a God that is for us, uh, that you really do have our best interest in mind. And um, as we talk today a little bit about sin and this, this idea that it doesn't matter what we do, that uh, you would just kind of lovingly convict people wherever they're at. And uh, we wouldn't walk out of here unchanged. We wouldn't walk out of here just feeling like, okay, I got my little dose of conviction and move on with our week. But we truly would change and we would understand that the reason we're changing is because, again, you're for us. You actually have our best interest in mind. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, Let's go back in history about 2,000 years when Jesus was walking around earth. Uh, back at that point in history, we could argue that the greatest cultural value at that point in history when Jesus you know, was on earth is this, is justice. This idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that if you do something wrong to me, then I get to wrong you in some way, right? Everything is equal, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, fast forward to today, present day, um, I think if we took like a poll and, you know, if the, you know, 200 or so people in this room, we try to figure that out, like, okay, what's the greatest cultural value now? I don't think that we would find it to be justice. I don't think that that's still the case. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong or right about that. I just don't think it's the case. I think today we would find the greatest cultural value to actually be tolerance. All right, so we, there's, there's definitely been a, a shift in our society, and over 2,000 years, again, we would kind of expect that. But what's even more interesting about this is that the very definition of tolerance has greatly shifted over the last decade or so. We used to define tolerance as this, that all people have equal value. All people have equal value. And I, I don't think that any of us would necessarily disagree with that. I mean, there's still some kind of bigots out in our world that might argue against this, but generally this is pretty well accepted, right? That all people have equal value. But again, if we take like present day, this definition of tolerance has greatly shifted and we've come to now embrace this definition that all behavior and all ideas have equal value. Not just that people have equal value, but all ideas, all behavior, all actions have equal value. And when we define tolerance as this, it becomes completely inappropriate to say that anyone's ideas or anyone's behaviors or anyone's actions are wrong. How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? How dare you tell me that I am sinning? Because if you're telling me that by that definition of tolerance, you are in turn being intolerant. And there could be nothing worse in our society, right, than being an intolerant person. And this has been taken to such an extreme level that I would guess that all about, just about all of us have examples. We have probably different instances in our lives where we've let something come flying out of our mouth and almost immediately we're met by, by, with a look by someone we do know, maybe we don't even know them that well, where if like looks could kill, like you would be in trouble, right? You're sitting there and you're like, are they looking at me right now? And you're kind of like over your shoulder, like, oh, me? Like, oh. And it kind of hits you all of a sudden, you're like... I guess I'm not allowed to say that either anymore. Just kind of cross it off the list. You're like, my vocabulary is dwindling by the day. In fact, we've taken what would otherwise be sinful and harsh-sounding terms, and we've watered them down so we make sure that we are never offending anyone. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, we don't really use the terminology porn or pornography, right? I mean, that sounds like, it's gross. We use the term adult entertainment. 
Now, we don't say adultery. I mean, adultery just kind of has this heavy feel to it. We, we, we call it an affair. We don't refer to it as premarital sex. I mean, that just screams like you're wrong, right? So we use terminology like hooking up, right? Uh, we don't call it high maintenance. We call it gluten-free. That last one was a joke, okay? <laughs> some of you, all right, I know, some of you are legitimately gluten-free. You have an allergy. Others of you, you're just being high maintenance, okay? Point is, we take what was once wrong and we give it this far easier to digest language because the unpardonable sin, the unpardonable sin in our society, in our culture is ever telling someone that they are wrong, to tell someone that they are sinning. But, and if you haven't come to grips with this, it's time to, time to be an adult. It's time to face reality. How you live has earthly consequences and nobody debates that. How you live as earthly cleansers, regardless of where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, you know this, you've experienced this in your life. How you live has earthly consequences, but God will tell us, and we'll find this today as we unpack scripture, he'll tell us that how we live also has eternal consequences as well. And whether we're talking about earth or eternity, they can be either positive or negative consequences. Hold on to that, we're gonna come back to it here in just a minute. But right now, what I wanted to do is specifically address three cultural misbeliefs about sin, and then let's talk about, okay, what did God actually say about these things? The first one is this, I'm not a bad person. We probably all heard this before, I'm not a bad person. Yeah, I make some mistakes sometimes, but really, no, deep down, I'm not a bad person. I've heard this all, many, many times in my life. Deep down, people are good, right? Deep down, they're, they're, in their core, they're good. No, they're not. Uh, any of you that have children specifically can attest to this, right? Uh, even those of you that don't have kids, you've probably observed kids at certain points in your life. Uh, nobody like gave my two-year-old lessons on how to misbehave, right? It was just kind of like intuitively there. Uh, the other day I was watching my, my son, uh, Malachi, who's one, and my daughter, uh, Logan, who's two and a half, and I was being kind of a negligent father, if I'm being totally honest. I was sitting on the couch and like playing on my phone. I was just kind of leaving them to their own devices. And they're, they're, they're kind of at the age now where they're finally starting to like interact and play with one another. But as I'm looking at my phone, all of a sudden I hear this, uh, uh, it's like this groan coming from my son's mouth. And I look over at him and, and my daughter is laying on top of him with all of her weight and driving her elbow into the back of his neck. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I get up and I go and grab her. I say, Logan, what, what are you doing, sweetie? You're going to hurt baby Malachi. He's a baby. You can't be so rough with him, okay? And she goes, okay, dad, dad, and looks sincere. I'm like, okay. Nipped it in the butt, right? I go back. I'm not sitting down for 10 seconds, and I look up from my phone, and she is winding up and just smacks him across the back of the head. And I go, what was that? So I run over, and I grab her again. I go, Logan, Marilyn, you cannot hit your brother. What are you doing? That is not nice. Like, he's a baby. You can't hit him. So I give her a little grace, no punishment yet. Okay, I'm like, all right. She gots it. I'm being pretty harsh with her. Again, not 10 seconds later, she is now winding up and kicks him in the back. And at this time, he starts crying, right? Because he just got kicked in the back by his sister. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So, okay, I pick her up, and you might not agree with this type of parenting, but I take her in the room, and I give her a little bit of a spank. And, I, and as she's crying through the tears, I, I look at her, and I say, Logan, why did you just get punished? Why did you get in trouble? Because I hit Malachi. I'm like, right, don't do that. Now, where did Logan learn that from? L Logan doesn't live in a home with domestic violence. She, she's never seen me hit Andrea. Andrea's never hit me. That's never happened in our marriage. She certainly couldn't have witnessed that. She has never, in her short two and a half years of existence, ever has she witnessed one person hitting another person. Never has that happened. But yet here she is, like hauling off, hitting her brother. Unfortunately, and this isn't really a popular thing to say, especially in a church, we're not good. 
We are quite bad. In fact, most of our natural instincts stand in direct opposition to what God wants us to do and where he ultimately wants to take us. In 1 John chapter 1, the, the writer of the book of John says this. He says, if we claim we have no sin, if you claim that you're good, that deep down you know, you're good, we are only fooling ourselves. Go ahead and say that with me. We are fooling ourselves and we are not living in the truth. Now, one of the ways that, that we arrive at this misbelief very often is, and we've all done this before, we play the comparison game. And again, we, we've all done this. Some of you, you might have done it even this morning. You're like, I'm not as bad as that person, right? I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that lady. I'm not as bad as that coworker. I'm not as bad as my boss. I mean, I'm not as bad as my neighbor, Jerry. Jerry, like, he curses a lot. And Jerry does a little drinking. I mean, I'm not as bad as Jerry. At least I'm not like that guy. And the, one of the incredible benefits of playing the comparison game is that you can always find someone seemingly worse than you. It's not very difficult for us to look around and find an example of an individual who, again, you're like, eh, not as bad as that person. But guess what? That is not the standard that any of us are going to be held to. You are not going to stand in front of your creator. I mean, how ridiculous of a thought is this? That you will stand in front of God at the end of your life claiming innocence based on how you, stand up, you stood up against Jerry, your foul-mouthed neighbor. The measure is God. And when we compare ourselves to a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God, Every single one of us, we all fall woefully short. Quick survey, and I need everyone to participate. I promise this wasn't a joke. You're not going to point at the center this time. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever done something that you didn't want to do, meaning you were faced with a decision, you knew it was wrong, and for those of you that wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you know, how weird is that, right? That there's something inside of you that in certain situations seemingly just knows what is right and what is wrong, but that's a story for another day. But You've ever, like, okay, I'm going to do something. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do this thing. I, I know that this is going to lead to regret, but you went ahead and do, did it anyway. Who has ever done it something like that? Again, you're like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Look at that. Every single hand, right? Everybody put their hand up right there. So, and the point of doing that is, if we cannot measure up to our own standard, I mean, if we can't even follow our own rules, then when it comes to a perfect, holy God, we are obviously not cutting it. Paul, in his letter to the, the Christians that were living in Rome, he says this, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. Don't fool yourself. Uh, last week, um, it was, it was a really, really crazy week for me uh, leading up to last Sunday, and I got home much later on a Sunday than I normally do, and I was tired and like, I don't know how some of you are. Some of you guys can operate on like four, five, six hours of sleep a night. I am not that guy. I need like my seven, eight hours of sleep. And if I go consecutive nights like that, it's like, it's not too long until I kind of become of a, a grumpy human being. And so it's Sunday night and a long week is kind of coming to a culmination and, you know, my, my nerves, you know, and just everything. I'm kind of on edge with everything. And I open up my laptop, which I shouldn't have done, and I start reading some emails. And there was one email that I read in particular um, that really frustrated me. And I haven't done something like this since, like, college. So this is full vulnerability here. I, I, I like, I went, you've got to be kidding me. But I said it much louder than that. And then, I, and then I punched the couch. Like, it went like this, and, like, I was frustrated. And it made a much louder thud than was actually what was going on there because I, like, hit, like, a wood beam in the couch, so it sounded a lot louder. And my daughter and my wife were sitting on the other couch, and immediately, my daughter starts bawling. And she's, like, never seen her dad, like, lose it like that. And so I go into the room, and I'm really, really mad, but at this point, I'm really more aggravated and angry at myself that I, like, 
let my emotions kind of get the best of me. And so I'm in there and I'm kind of like huffing and puffing. And so then I come back out and I pick up Logan. I'm like, I'm so sorry, sweetie. I should not have done that. And I apologize to her and I apologize to my wife. And my wife makes it very, very clear that I should never do anything like that again. Um, so, you know, the next day I wake up, I got good sleep, and I'm kind of like refreshed, all right, I can just kind of forget that little episode. But wouldn't you know it, around noon, my wife calls me on FaceTime uh, because she wants to show me something that my son and daughter are doing out in their like little kiddie pool. And my daughter, as soon as she recognizes that daddy's on FaceTime, comes running over to the phone and she goes, Dad, are you still mad? Dad, are you still mad? Now, keep in mind, two of the people that work for me, Taylor, our kids director, and Stephanie, our admin director, are within like 10 feet of me. So they hear all this. Dad, are you still mad? I'm like, shh, shh, no, no, Daddy's not still mad. Dad, Daddy's good. Dad, Dad, you hit the couch again? <laughs> so now I have to hang up the phone and relive this entire moment and explain to Taylor and Stephanie, okay, here's why my daughter is asking these questions. I promise I'm not an abusive human being, but this is kind of what went down. Like, again, I know this is incredibly, incredibly embarrassing. We all sin. We all fall short. I'm not a bad person. Actually, you are, but join the club. Welcome to it. All right, number two, all sin is the same. All sin is the same. Spend virtually any time uh, around Christians, and, and Jesus followers are the worst perpetuators of this lie, uh, and it's only a matter of time before somebody lets something like this come flying out of their mouth. You know, he's not any worse than you. He's not any worse than me, because after all, all sin is the same. You don't have any right to judge me because after all, all sin is the same. God never said that. Scripture certainly doesn't support that. Now, let's make this abundantly clear right here, you know, kind of on the front end of this lie. All unforgiven sin, all unforgiven sin leads to eternal separation from God. All unforgiven sin leads to separation from God, whether it's big sin, whether it's little sin, whether it's somewhere in between sin, but not all sin is the same. Again, in Paul, in his letter to the Christians living in Rome, he says, for the wages of sin is death. Unforgiven sin is death. It is eternal death. But the free gift of God, and this is the good news for all of us, the free gift of God is eternal life, the opposite of death, through Christ Jesus our Lord. All unforgiven sin separates us from God and in turn leads to death. Again, eternal death. But the good news, the incredible news, is that God gives us a solution. And that solution comes in the form of his son, Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins on a cross. All sin is not the same. And in fact, we all kind of, again, intuitively know this. Let's say, you know, for example, uh, wives, you were at like the beach with your husband and uh, you blatantly caught him like gawking at another woman, right? You know, somebody younger and, you know, pretty attractive comes and, you know, starts sunbathing next to you, not wearing the most, you know, conservative bathing suit. And I mean, you catch him blatantly staring at that woman. You're going to be mad about that, right? And you have every right to be angry about that. And that's going to lead to some arguments and a discussion. Now, let's say conversely, though, you caught your husband physically cheating on you with that woman. Is there anything that I could say in this moment right now that would convince you that both of those things are the same? Not a chance. Both of them are going to lead to some unfun conversations. One of them is probably going to lead to some conversations, maybe a couple nights sleeping on the couch. The other one, in all likelihood, is going to lead to divorce. Both are sin, but they are different sin. Both lead to eternal separation from God if unforgiven, but they are far from equal in terms of consequences. Again, how you live, it has earthly consequences. Nobody debates that, but God is telling us that, hey, how you live, it also has eternal consequences consequences. If John, uh, who is our music director, and he's still off on his honeymoon so I can pick on him here and he doesn't know about it, that's an incredible benefit that when you leave, so you know, always beware if you're not here on Sunday mornings. I'm just kidding, obviously, about that. Uh, if John, let's say, he started committing the sin of gluttony, 
you know, he, there's, there's a chance that he might be able to, to keep his job. However, if John on Wednesday nights, the band rehearses on Wednesday evenings and practices for these Sunday morning, you know, like songs and all that stuff, if on, on Wednesday evenings after, you know, the band rehearsed, if he started smoking dope with the band, he would not be able to keep his job. There are earthly consequences that vary based on the sin, and there are eternal consequences, rewards in heaven or punishment in hell. I'd like to show you some other scripture that kind of points to this as well. In Luke chapter 20, Luke is one of the gospel books, one of the books that document Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It says the Pharisees, who were these religious leaders back then, it says they devour widows' houses. They take advantage of widows. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers, not because they're sincere, but they're like trying to show off. These men will be punished most severely, certainly suggesting that there are people that are going to be punished less severe and more severe depending on their actions. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, run from sexual sin. Don't stand up against it. Don't you know, keep guard against it. Run, flee, head for the hills. Why? Because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't stand your ground. There's plenty of scripture to support this idea that you need to stand against the sin, that, that you need to fight against it. Stand your ground. Not with sexual sin. Why would he say that? Because no other sin has such a disastrous effect on us as sexual sin. And whether you're a Jesus follower or not, you know this. Sexual sin, and any of you that have committed sexual sin, you know this. It's almost impossible to get rid of. Oftentimes it is stuff that you carry with you for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what you do. Oh, yes, it does. Sin certainly has consequences here on earth but for eternity as well. And then number three, there's the third lie. Since I've already done it, I might as well just keep on doing it. I've already done it, I might as well keep on doing it. In a room this size, I have no doubt that there are certain people that are sitting here today that are embracing this lie right now. I've already done it, so I might as well keep on doing it. I mean, I've already lost my virginity, what does it matter? Might as well just kind of keep at it. I mean, there's nothing I can do to get that back. I mean, I've already lost so much because of drinking, I mean... What else is there honestly to lose? I might as well keep on going down that path. I mean, I've already gotten away with cheating quite a few times at work with my spouse and my relationships. I, I mean, what does it matter? I mean, I'm not going to get caught. I'm going to keep on doing it. I mean, I've already looked at pornography, and it's kind of like just a habit now, but honestly, it doesn't really affect my relationship, so I might as well just keep going down that path. Now, evidently, and this is one of the fascinating things about Scripture, and you find this all over the place. Uh, this isn't a new issue. This isn't a new thought, because Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he addresses this exact same thing. He says this. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning? He's going, hey, you've already sinned, so might as well, you might as well keep on doing it, right? Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more and more of his wonderful grace? I mean, God is so full of mercy. He, he's so full of grace. We talk about that all the time on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, he's so full of mercy. He's so rich in grace. I mean, shouldn't we just keep on sinning so his grace and his mercy can be on just like beautiful display for everyone to see? I mean, God's going to forgive us anyway, so shouldn't we just keep on sinning? He then goes on to answer his rather rhetorical question, and it's as if he's gotten exasperated by his own question. He says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? He's going, have you lost your mind? You are smarter than that. You are better than that. In other words, he's telling all of us, and he's telling you this morning, he's do you not realize, all of you, do you not realize that you were bought with a price? I mean, did you not realize how, how exceptional 
exceedingly disrespectful that lie in particular is to God? That, that God thinks so highly of you, specifically you, not you in generic terms, but you specifically. He thinks so highly of you that he sent his one and his only son to die for you. But yet, we are going to have the audacity to go on and make a complete mockery of that by living a life that completely ignores and completely undermines what God has done for every single one of us? Why would we keep on doing something that we know not, not only hurts ourselves and oftentimes hurts the people around us, but it also hurts God? One of the seminal moments in my life came about when I realized that when I sin, it doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt those that I care about, but it hurts God. God has emotions. God has feelings. When we sin, it hurts him. It hurts him so much. I mean, gosh, when I... I would love if, if we would just grasp onto that this morning. The, the, the fact that when we make mistakes, when, when, when we put this language behind it that kind of undermines the sin and doesn't make it sound as bad, we are hurting our creator. Don't keep on sinning. God is something so much better for you. From day one at this church, I've been pretty blunt about the fact that, in fact, we had a whole Sunday that talked about it, uh, that we want to be a church that, that goes after people who are far from God. And, and we want to do that because I think that reflects the very heart of Jesus, that he would leave the 99 and he would go out and he would pursue the one. You know, candidly, we didn't start this church to attract disgruntled Christians, people who just didn't really like their last church. Now, naturally, that's going to happen a little bit, but again, our heart behind all of this and what God kind of sparked up inside of me was, hey, create a place, create an environment where unchurched people enjoy walking through your doors. Um, in fact, the, the only time, and, and when you go down that path, and when, when that's kind of your mindset on, on starting a church, um, you oftentimes will receive criticism, and, and we almost hear this on, on a weekly basis, and I, I hear it almost every week, that people are like, well, you just don't go deep enough. And ironically enough, that, that never comes from non-Christians, right? That that's always feedback that you get from Christians, and it kind of actually reassures me that we're on the right track. But spiritual maturity isn't based on how much we know. It's based on how much we obey. It's not knowledge, it's fruit. If you love Jesus, if you truly love Jesus, you will obey him. And unfortunately, most Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. Let me say that again. Most Jesus followers are educated far beyond their level of obedience. And so if you're sitting here today and, and you've maybe had that thought, and you're like, man, we just don't go deep enough, or, or you've thought maybe, okay, I, I should pull Shay aside and have that conversation, um, maybe you should step up your obedience. Maybe you should just apply what you already know, know before you gather more information. Now, I don't want that to sound harsh, or I certainly don't want that to sound arrogant, um, and I definitely don't want it to make it sound like I'm perfect, like, I'm the modern-day Paul. Like, I have this whole life thing perfectly figured out. I'm such a sinful, such a prideful, such a selfish human being. I'm constantly confessing my sin to God. 
the closer I get to God, the, the, the more rem- I am reminded of how truly pitiful I am. And any of you that are Jesus followers, you can attest to that. It's one of the ironies about following Jesus, that the more you follow him, the closer you get with him, the more you realize how desperately you need his grace, how desperately you need his mercy, how much you need his forgiveness. And, and the last thing that I want is for any of you to leave here today just feeling terrible about yourselves. But we do need to recognize that sin is progressive. Sin grows. When left in the dark, it only gets worse. God encourages us to bring it into the light, to not keep quiet about it. My prayer leading up to today has been that, that God will kind of lovingly convict you wherever you're at, that through these words, that, that God will bring stuff to the light, that whatever sin is in your life will be brought out to the open because sin is progressive. I've seen this firsthand in, in, in my life and unfortunately, a number of different ways. And again, this is you know, full vulnerability here. Um, one of the areas that I recognized that this was kind of taking a hold of me, upon graduating uh, college, um, I realized that I had developed a pretty terrible habit, um, that I exaggerated a lot. That a lot of what came out of my mouth was like kind of true, but there was like a lot of stuff there that wasn't necessarily true. And I think I was doing that because I liked to be the center of attention. I, I, I liked, you know, when I was in a room, people to pay attention to me. And exaggerating kind of caused people to pay a little bit more attention to what I was saying, to what I had to say. And so as I grew closer to God, he started to kind of press in on that. And again, many of you can attest to that, these things that you didn't really think of as sins at one time. You grow closer to God and he starts to kind of bring these things to the surface. And so I was having this really, really vulnerable moment with a mentor of mine. And his name is Mark Cooper. He's a pastor now out in uh, Illinois. And I'm, I'm pouring my heart out to him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm such an exaggerator. I start bawling. I'm like sobbing my eyes out because I'm feeling so convicted about the sin that has just taken a hold of my life. And I'll never forget this moment. I'm sitting there and I'm bawling. And I'm like, I'm such an exaggerator. And I'm like saying this through the tears. And, and Mark says, Shay, look at me. And I look up at him and he says, you're not an exaggerator. And I thought this was going to be this incredible, heartfelt moment where he's like, you're not an exaggerator. You are a child of God. And he was going to embrace me in his loving arms. You know what he did? He goes, you're not an exaggerator. You are a liar. And with like the most stone, I was like, what? This is telling you like, no, I am an exaggerator. He's like, you are a liar. And I admire him so much for that because he knew exactly what I was doing. I was taking this thing, this sin in my life, and I was putting it this like easier language around it that didn't make it feel as dirty, and he knew that until I started calling that exaggerating for what it actually was, lying, I was never going to actually do with it, deal with it. Sin will take you so much farther than you wanna go, and it will cost you so much more than you are willing to pay. And it is such a bigger deal than however it is that you might try and be trying to rationalize it in your head right now. And if you're a Jesus follower, it is costing you big time because it causes you to lose intimacy with God because your heart becomes harder and harder and harder and the distance between sinning and repenting just continues to grow and grow and grow. We all screw up, every one of us. But spiritual maturity you could almost define it as this, is just a short distance between sinning and repenting. There were points in my life where that distance just grew farther and farther and farther, and so it took me so long to get that intimacy back. 
But now I'm at this point in my life where it's like a sin or repent, a sin or repent, and I never get to be that far away from God. The greater that gap becomes, the less sensitive you are going to be to his voice, to his promptings. It so matters what you do. Sin has such a profound impact on our lives, not only here and now, but for the millions and the billions of years that are going to come after this for eternity. But here's the good news, and this is why we get to kind of celebrate this morning. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for the righteous. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And apparently, he liked them back. God looked down into our world, this world that we have all screwed up, this, this, this world where, where we had caused this separation with him. We are the ones that made the mistakes. We are the ones that started sinning. And he looked down, and rather than walking away, which, mind you, he could have done, rather than just hanging an out-of-order sign on the world and saying, I'm done with these guys, they screwed it up, and rolling out, he chose to get involved. And that involvement came in the form of his son, Jesus. He looked down and he said, I am going to find a solution to their sin problem. In Romans 5.8, it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of love. But God showed his great love for us, not for him, for us, by sending Christ to die for us. And there's such power in this statement. While we were still sinners. Not when we had it all figured out. Not in the midst of our repenting. Not when we were trying to get better. No, while we were still sinners, that is when he sent his son for us. All of us are good to those who do good to us, even the worst of the worst, that they're good back to those who do good to them. But God sent his son to die for us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rejection. It's an incomprehensible type of love. Until you see yourself as a sinner, you won't see a need for a savior. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came for me and he came for you. He came for sinners, people who know that they are doing wrong, but yet they know that God has something so much better for us. Sin costs us in so many ways, but Jesus is so much bigger than our sin. Again, in 1 John chapter 8, Chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But, and this is one of the greatest buts in the history of buts, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Jesus is your way out of sin. Jesus is the key to true fulfillment, to true purpose, to experiencing true joy in your life. He fills that void, that Jesus-shaped void that all of us have tried to cram full of other stuff that this world has to offer us, but always falls short. Doesn't matter what you do, as long as you don't hurt anyone. That is such a dangerous lie. Because sin, sin is the greatest hindrance to intimacy with God. And you can't confess sin that you aren't even acknowledging in the first place. God has such great plans for you. He, he has such great plans for every one of your lives. But you're never going to get there if you keep on rationalizing 
if you keep on justifying, even worse yet, and we've all done this, if you keep on coddling and protecting your sin, until you see yourself as a sinner, you will not see a need for a savior. Don't fool yourself. Live in his truth.